Hey everybody and welcome to All of the Above, the podcast where we couldn't decide whether we wanted to discuss philosophy of ministry, share stories, discuss books, or do a various and a sundry other things, so we just decided that we were going to do All of the Above. I'm joining me today from our state-of-the-art podcast studio at 102 Memorial Drive um, is Aaron Greer, Markham. South Carolina. Yeah, dude, this is, this is state-of-the-art. You guys should see this. We have blankets and... Uh, sofa cushions and anything to like, I don't know what we're doing in here. We're taking the sound down. I guess it doesn't echo. I don't know what's happening. Yeah, the Jonathan th- just sets it up every week and it looks crazy, but then the podcast sounds good. The theory is that it dampens. I don't know if it actually does anything. I just want to sit in a pillow fort while I record a Perfect. podcast. Perfect. So here we are. Um, today's topic, um, as you can tell from the title, is posing the question, why read old books? Um, when there are hundreds of other modern writers coming out with books, what seems like every other day, why should we go back to read old books? Um, a lot of them are hard to hard to read through, hard to understand, um, but we believe, or I hope, Aaron, you believe, <laughs> that they are valuable and that we should return to read them. Um, but before we dive into that, I wanted to ask a question, um, just kind of to get us started. Um, what, like thinking back, over your experience with books, what what is one experience that stands out to you? Like, what was one book, one moment in one book mm. that stands out to you? That's a great that's a great question. I was wondering if we were going to kind of have a fun question. I was coming up with a fun question that I was then just going to spin back on you, which I'll ask maybe in a minute. I think for me, so when you talk about experience of books, um, I'm a person who has. A decent bit of experience in books, and then a very limited experience in books. All at the same time, I uh, I did not enjoy books uh, growing up. Um, I didn't read very much at all, to the chagrin of my mom. I had to sit in my room for an hour on Saturdays and Sundays to, quotation marks, read. I don't know, I just usually sit there and twiddle my thumbs or like look at baseball cards or who knows what I was doing. Um, reading was not, was not a favorite. I loved growing up um, these books. Uh, Matt Christopher was the author. He just wrote sports books, and I would always just assess: is this actually how the sports ta- the sports game takes place? I always enjoyed those books. But the but the thing that sticks out the most to me, kind of two ideas. What one is an idea, and when one is a book. An idea is hearing. Um, I don't even exactly remember who it was, but articulate that essentially the person that you are going to become a year from now three years from now, and I think he was highlighting five years from now, is essentially the people that you're around and the books that you read. Um, And so the person you want to become is going to be dictated in many ways by the books that you read because books are a way that we get to learn something new. All of us think we know a lot, like think we know a lot about whatever we know about. Um, But in the world of just knowledge in general, you are but a pinprick on the huge circle that encompasses all knowledge to be out there. And then even even more so, you know, if we talk about the Bible or we talk about theology books or, you know, books that are kind of helping us walk as, as followers of Jesus, we still just know so little. However much I think I know right now, how much you think you know right now, I mean, we just have so far to grow um, to love Jesus. A specific instance that sticks out is reading my junior year of college John Piper's Don't Waste Your Life, and it was just, you know, encouraging, 
it was challenging for the soul. Um, I had just become a believer the year prior. I was just wrestling through a lot of sin. And it was just, I, for the first time, I'm starting to think about, what is the point of my life? And that was the first, jun- my junior year of college was the first time I started to ask, what I want to do, like ministry of some kind? Um, what, do, what do I hope to do with my life? It had always been teach math, coach sports, teach math, coach sports. Junior year, starting to read, like, don't waste your life and other books similar. It just started to um, kind of prick me in, in ways that um, I wanted to consider really the value of my life. So, yeah, what about you? I love that. You are the books that you read. Um, I guess I'm Harry Potter. Mm, yes. <laughs> um, it's so good. Two two specific stories that stick out to me, and I'm pretty sure I may have told both of these on the podcast before, but I'm, I'm going to We need to hear back. them again. I'm going to spin back to them anyway. Um, the first is, so when my dad is in the military, and um, when he deployed, um, I was in shoot, probably third grade, third or fourth grade. And we had been reading through the Harry Potter books together, um, just kind of before bed. We had started with um, Sorcerer's Stone and had been carrying out through, carrying throughout the series. Um, and then when he got to Goblet of Fire, um, he deployed. And so he actually recorded on, like, cassette tape him reading all of the Goblet of Fire um, to me and um, sent them in boxes um, from Iraq or Afghanistan, um, wherever he was, so I could listen to them. I put them in a little cassette player and put on my little headphones before bed and opened the book and um, read along with him. Um, So that's just been super, like, that's stuck in my mind. I Um, love it. And Gobble to Fire holds a special place in my heart because of that. Mm. Um, And I still have them somewhere. They're probably out of order, not working anymore, don't have a cassette type player. That is so amazing. I remember reading, like, half of Gobble to Fire, and kind of being intrigued and enjoying it, and then just not being able to read <laughs> seven hundred pages. Like I did not have that ability. I have some books age. of my dad reading them. If you if you that's want amazing. To, want to listen to them, um, and then the second second one is when I was um, probably in high school. Um, I was reading through the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and it got to the part where um, Eustace was the was the dragon, and he was trying to like get a, become not a dragon, turn back into a boy. Um, and he was trying to scrape himself off, like scrape off the scales himself, and he couldn't. And it took Aslan scraping the scales off for him. And it was just this like light bulb moment in my head. I was like, "This is the gospel." Mm. And I like found some like nub of a pencil and underlined it in the book. I was like, "This is beautiful." I love it. And I, I like vivid memories of that night. I got out of bed at like ten thirty at night, ran into my parents' room. I was like, "Mom, Dad, look, look, this is incredible." Um. So it was one of those light bulb moments for me. I was like, "This is this is great." So that's why that's one probably one of my favorite books now. But that's of, awesome. Do that. you do you have a yeah? What would do you have a favorite book? Oh man, um, probably Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Okay. If I had if I had to pick pick one, that would probably be my favorite okay. book of all books. Of all books, I love it. That's great. Mine would be Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor by. D.A. Carson. I haven't read it in probably like uh, probably six or seven years, but it was one of the few books that it just like brought me to tears. It was just D.A. Carson talking about his dad who just pastored 20 people, 25 people, learned different languages in um, Canada. I think he had to learn French and um, just being faithful to, to serve, serve a people. And so it's so good when you get to walk into a book and just be 
moved and learn and grow and enjoy the experience. That's really good. Um, so let's get let's get into our question uh, for today. Uh, why read old books? Um, and, and it's funny we kind of got this idea from the the introduction to or preface to um, on the incarnation, mm-hmm. which we read and um, did our kind of Advent series on. Um, C.S. Lewis does an introduction in that book that he kind of um, argues for reading old books and why that's helpful. Um, I thought it was funny that now. I guess C.S. Lewis would kind of be considered old books. That's right. <laughs> to yep. us in the in the modern or postmodern era, um, so it's kind of funny reading him like having an apologetic for reading old books when we would now consider his books are now yeah a now little, little little bit older. Yeah. All right. Um, so I just thought that was funny. So that's kind of where where this came from. Um, so I guess the f- first question: What? Why don't people read old books, or what? What do you think some of the barriers are for? people kind of engaging in these uh, texts. Yeah, that's great. You you mentioned uh, On the Incarnation. It's written by Athanasius sometime probably around 300 A.D., just generically, so 1,700 years ago. And we're reading, you know, one, uh, it's a it's a translation, so you've got to, you know, if it's if it's old, too old, it's got to be probably translated from, from another language. But then... The difficulty in reading a book like like his, the way he speaks, the way he thinks, uh, the way he's going to articulate something, it's in English words that I, you know, for the most part, know and understand. But the way that the sentences are put together or the depth or the, I wish there was more nuance, but he just made two sentences. That's his, that's his belief, and he's moving to the next idea. People throughout all of time, have always thought differently. We all have different worldviews, different cultures, different languages, different ways. Even, you know, English is used very differently at different times in uh, history, at different in different ways throughout the world um, and throughout the U.S. And so just the way the, the language comes together, it's not as easy to read as, you know, I find myself probably because of just being trained by being in 2022, desiring in some ways the the article um, online that's got three or four nice headers that's point one, two, three, and four. Generally, I just read those four headers, and it's like if one really sticks out, then I go in and read that paragraph that was about that header, and then I'm moving on to the moving on to the next thing. And it requires kind of it's it, you don't have to be very long with it. It's it's a pretty short experience. Can learn a little tidbit of information about whatever, and then keep moving. Whereas uh, reading old books requires going into the time, going into the thought structure, probably just having to read a little slower than is ideal. Um, so yeah, those are those are some ideas I have. What ideas do you have? No, I think mine are mine are along the same lines. Um, it. In a society where we kind of desire instant gratification, reading old books requires us to slow down Mm. um, and really think through and process. We can't, or at least I can't, really skim through and and figure out, okay, what what is this saying here? Because i got to like chew on it a little bit and digest it um, a little bit more than, say, something that was written last year. Um, And it's just different categories than, than we typically think through. Um, I think 
a lot of times when a lot of times when we approach these books, we come at it looking for something specific, and that's not necessarily what they were thinking through or the same questions they were asking. Um, so it's just a completely different context that I don't think we're necessarily familiar with. Um, and I also think, um, and and C.S. Lewis brings this up kind of as his first point is there's just this stigma around old text that it, that's for um, the professionals or that's for mm-hmm. the people who are the intellectuals who are kind of studying this. Um, in our context, that's for the pastors or the theologians or the PhDs to, to kind of digest. And then I'll read the book on the book, mm-hmm. um, kind of the cliff notes version of it. Um, I'll leave that to them, um, which I don't think is very helpful um, necessarily. I really liked, and I'll, I'll just kind of read what um, C.S. Lewis wrote at the beginning. Um, he starts out, there's this strange idea abroad that in every subject, the ancient books should be read only by the professionals. Um, and that the amateur should content himself with the modern books. Thus I found as a tutor in English literature that if the average student wants to find out something about uh, Platonism, the very last thing he thinks of doing is to take a translation of Plato off the library shelf and read the symposium. He would rather read some dreary modern book ten times as long about isms and influences and only once in twelve pages telling him about what Plato actually said. Um, so it's this, it's this we'll, we'll leave that to the professionals. I don't really want to take the time, whether whether it's because of the whole instant gratification or whether it's I just want, I just want the plain and simple. Mm. And he, go, he goes on to talk about how, in many ways, Plato's writing is going to be easier and more, is just going to be more better, better written uh, than anything a modern person has written, hence why it has lasted. For, for so long. It's so interesting to think about just all of the books being published today about any and every idea, but then thinking about Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. We can, it's, it's, there's something very beautiful about reading books that have kind of stood the test of time. Um, there's something very valuable uh, in that and something we can, we can learn from for sure. Absolutely. So that, that transitions kind of well into the next question what so what's the what's the benefit like if if we do decide that that reading um old books is a value and it's a valuable undertaking um what's the benefit why should we read these books yeah that's that's a great question i think i want to read two quotes from lewis's introduction uh, in on the incarnation he says every age has its own outlook it is specially good at seeing certain truths and specially liable to make certain mistakes. Um, we we have we only have our contemporary outlook. The only way we understand life is with cars and lights and HVAC units and computers and microphones and phones and all of the things that are that are before us. Uh, we that that that's all that we have access to. And yet, in many ways, I was reading a book, or it might have been an article recently, talking about how HVAC units essentially just create a false climate. Uh, lights just create a false sense of day and night. Um, so many other, you know, technological innovations that aren't, most people have not experienced life that way. And so it's, it's helpful to, and that those are just kind of technological things, but there's so many other ways of how life works, what's the purpose of life, what is family like. Um, how are we spo- how productive are we supposed to be? Any millions of ideas. 
that it is it is just helpful to get outside of the time and place that you operate in. Um, we don't get to do that very much. And books are especially helpful, especially books that have stood the test of time because they're offering us some idea about how life works or about some truth that we can then understand um, outside of our context. So that would be one. And then his, his kind of encouragement uh, following on that is to keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds, and this can be done only by reading old books. So it's helpful to, uh, love that language, keep the, keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds. So it's helpful to have um, ideas and thoughts and the wisdom of people in the past who have written it down. They've tried to do the best they can um, to give the best language they can to whatever their ideas are uh, in their head, and then to allow that to speak into our day and our, our time. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that's that. my thought is exactly. Um, these books are time-tested. I mean, they've, they've lasted this long for a reason. Um, it's not by chance that people are still reading Athanasius or Plato or, or whoever today. Um, and a lot of the modern texts, like we don't have that advantage. Um, we don't we don't have the perspective of the future to kind of see where these books, like how they age. Because I mean, you you read through or watch some movies from a couple years ago, and it's like, ooh, that <laughs> that's not right. Yep. Or or you, I mean, even with the authors, like you you're like, ooh, this person did something that kind of discredits what there. I mean, one that comes to mind is like Robbie Zacharias and everything that. Um, apologetically, he wrote. Um, it's like, oh, that kind of taints what, what he'd written before, in, in, in a sense. Um, so we don't have that same perspective, whereas we do have that for some of these um, older books. It is super interesting that you bring that up to think about how a book um, matures, even thinking about, I think you and I have joked or talked about the book Dangerous Calling by Paul David Tripp, talking about exactly uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. becoming a uh, becoming a pastor. Essentially, how dangerous it is because of so many things. Your identity is going to ra- be wrapped up in it. You're um, you'll become a professional kind of clergy member more than one who just communes and walks closely with the Lord. All the all the dangers, but then it's interesting. It's endorsed on the back. There's five endorsements, and three of them are all people who have uh, either left the faith or have gone away from pastoral ministry all of them highlighting like, hey, this book is so important, it'll help you have longevity in ministry and, and the sort. So it's almost this this picture of um, the people who endorsed it then didn't obey the book and then are away from ministry or are no longer Christians, um, despite being pastors of large churches, creating mm-hmm. large movements. Um, so it's interesting to kind of see how history plays itself out. Exactly. But I think, I think there's a danger to that too. Like we don't want to get like too caught up in these old books because um, Lewis mentions it in his article, but I've also heard it elsewhere. Like they were sinners too. Like mm-hmm. they made, they made mistakes just as we did. Um, they may have been different mistakes, but they, they made mistakes as well. Um, so it, it's kind of on both sides. These books are time tested, but they're not any more authoritative necessarily. Yeah. And that's really good. Cause I even think about that when I read the Bible, oftentimes it's, Oh, I'm reading God's word. This is gonna we're it's gonna be so encouraging and uplifting. And then I you read through Genesis, and it, these people didn't write Genesis, but you just read of um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, um, their wives, all the sin that just takes place. Um, 
people who are held up in high regard are still sinners. Absolutely. Um, everyone except Jesus. <laughs> and so it's helpful to to acknowledge that and recognize that, yes, they have shortcomings, they have um, pitfalls for their time and when they wrote. But also I was encouraged listening, uh, thinking about, or listening to a podcast yesterday, listening to them talk about at some point, you know, when you write a book, when you put out a piece of music or a work of art, you you work on it, you work on it, you edit it and edit it, and then you just gotta you just gotta mm. put it out there. Mm-hmm. And so any book is probably not perfect. Hence why, you know, I, I saw some book re- recently. It was like seventeenth edition, um, <laughs> and it was just like there's there's always editing. There's always more to say. There's always a better way to articulate it, a better way to nuance it. But we just need to let people kind of speak for what they were speaking to. Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, another like reason or benefit to them, like you were you were mentioning, it kind of takes us out of the modern context. And I love the quote, "the clean sea breeze of the centuries." Um, and I, I think it's been interesting, kind of thinking through this question alongside of like Ecclesiastes, um, in the sense of like all is heaven. Um, so, so a lot of the books that we see come out today are speaking to a very modern, a very temporary. Um, issue, and they're made for the moment. Um, they're not necessarily made or written to last, um, whereas some of these books are. Hmm. Um, but there's also the sense of Ecclesiastes where there's nothing new under the sun. Um, so a lot of these old books that are speaking to a, a different time uh, may be speaking to some of the same things that, that we're experiencing today. Um, and, and that kind of clears that modern bias or modern perspective from our eyes, and we can kind of see problems, see see things a little bit differently, um, having the different perspective from even centuries ago. Mm. Yeah, that's really that's really helpful. And I was even thinking about old old books or even books that stand the test of time. They can they can be hard and difficult, and yet. Um, it's also helpful because a lot of times books that have stood the test of time do have those kind of commentaries or things that have written about them. A book I read recently was Christ and Culture by Richard Niebuhr, written in 1951, and it was just a challenge to read. Essentially, he's writing, thinking about how does Christianity, how does theology, how does Christ relate to the culture? Are we supposed to be totally against the culture, like um, maybe Quakers or Mennonites? We just isolate from the culture. Are we... Um, to be totally of the culture, um, you know, kind of be totally influenced by whatever the cultural whim is. And then he offers kind of three other ways. And I mean, it was just a challenge to like get his reading. He's writing 70 years ago. But then it's just helpful to, to, to kind of even push through that mm. and then recognize, okay, maybe I still need a little help. But with those with those great books, there's a lot of times helpful articles or, you know, commentaries, maybe not to... Uh, Lewis's point, I don't necessarily want to read a book that's 10 times as long as Plato about Plato, but there's there's ways to kind of helpfully summarize the ideas that, that come from a book. For sure. Um, so where do you start? Like if you if you want to start, like let's say we've we've sparked interest in, in old books, where where's a good place to start? Because, I mean, you can dive off the deep end and pick up some German novel or, or whatever and try to translate your way through there, um, but that may not be as accessible as, as some other options. Where would you recommend somebody starting um, if they wanted to start engaging with older books? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and I guess in, in some ways um, would want to kind of cater to, 
to what they desire? Um, what are they wanting to, to learn about? Do they want to dive deep into church history and get into early church fathers who are writing in the first, second, third century who are going to write in a way that is not necessarily going to be as theologically like divided out as we would probably want them to be, but they're writing... Um, they're, they're, I, I heard um, recently that mission is the mother of theology, that um, theology came because of mission, because people were taking the gospel forward, meeting new cultures, and then figuring out, okay, how does what's written in the Bible, um, and even then they're still kind of wrestling through what, what is the Bible, um, how is that going to interact with um, this new culture, and it speaks into Gnosticism or Arianism or just whatever, you know, ism from, from the old days. So there's there could be a lot of fun kind of thinking about how the foundational history of of Christ. Um, you can read about guys like um, Justin Martyr or um, people who have even given their lives for the sake of, of the faith. But then I'm also, you know, thinking about older books. I mean, to your point, C.S. Lewis is now, I mean, he, he has written, all of his books are older books. Um so even reading something like the Chronicles of Narnia, that's that's um, still super beautiful and fun. Um, I just I'm I'm super stoked about reading books like that with my own kids and just getting to process through um, some of those books and enjoy oh, that time. So what about what about you? What do you have any books that specifically stick out? Um, I would probably recommend all of the Lewis Library. I mean, I don't think you can go wrong there. Um, on the incarnation was super valuable, um, super helpful for me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it really depends on what you're interested in. I think it, it can also go beyond a purely theological context. Mm -hmm. I mean, this, I think it, it speaks volumes for like literature, poetry, all those books you, your English teacher made you read in ninth grade. I know I, I didn't read them in ninth grade and I, very much look forward to my kids going back through those grades and then reading them with them. Oh, absolutely. I I, I was talking with Trevor, and uh, he, I can't remember if it was an article or somebody was talking with him, but one of the books that this guy recommended every person read was Weathering Heights, mm. just in general. Um, so yeah, I think there's value in, in even kind of dipping your toes into some like older literature that may be a little bit more accessible, a little more readable than something um, that was like in... 12th century Germany yeah. or, or wherever. Um, and then kind of progress from there. And, and it's not like, it's not to say you should never read modern books. Um, I think Lewis said, if given the choice between only reading old books or only reading new, you should only read old books. But he said, if you have to read modern books, at least alternate. Um, I don't even think that's a like necessity there, mm. but, um, I would just encourage anyone listening to to begin however you feel most comfortable, whether that's through poetry, literature, whether you just want to dive off the deep end, however, however you feel most comfortable um, doing that to just begin engaging in these old texts. I even think about a book like, and I literally, I don't even know if this book is still okay. Um, <laughs> I, I do remember reading The Great Gatsby. I have no idea what it's about, what the point of it is, what the theme of it is, if it's a good book, if it's a bad book, if I, I don't know. But I just the, those types of books that were that were written, um, you know, eighty, a hundred years ago. Um, there's just something intriguing about kind of going back because I I didn't pay a lick of attention to reading seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh grade. Um, 
And so going back and then processing, okay, what what are people trying to say? What are they arguing for? What are the themes? What's being put forward as right and wrong, moral and immoral? Um, what are we? What is the author trying to teach us? Much as we would read the Bible, what is what is what is Paul trying to teach us? Mm. What is he trying to say to his audience? To try to go read that for for um, different different periods and just kind of see, okay, how what what's a famous book from an era and, and why was this famous and why did this stick out and what what were they trying to teach us? Uh, through it. I was trying to think through, I was like, what? Great Gatsby. And all that came to mind was that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio meme where he's like raising the glass. So that's, that's my frame of reference for Great Gatsby. So I know nothing. I, apologies. It just popped in my head. Apologies to all of my previous English teachers. Um, I did read the cliff notes, but that's about it. Well, Aaron, do you have anything else um, you'd like to say before we close this out? No, I, I think it's just helpful in in um, reading old books to, to again like what I, what I just tried to articulate to see the worldview of one author, but generally, if something kind of holds up the test of time, it's probably held by a reasonable number of people from that era. Um, to see how people thought, believed, um, how they be- what they. Um, deemed moral and immoral, right and wrong, good and bad, just and unjust. And then to assess that and, and think on that and see how life has changed and to recognize we also, all of us come with with a certain level of um, background. We've all been influenced by things like the Enlightenment or things like um, cultural pluralism uh, where we live today. There's just so many cultures that exist um, all around us, and we're being more heavily influenced by that than we've ever been before. And it's it's helpful to learn from other cultures or other people, um, but to just think about how do, how do people operate? Why do we think the way we do? And a lot of that stems uh, because of history, uh, because of how things have developed over time. That's great. I just had as you were saying that I, I remembered something that I heard earlier. How like we've been so influenced, and, and I'll end on this, but how we've been so influenced by the just machine era, um, even with like iPhones or the next best thing, that newer automatically means better, um, that whatever is newest is by default best um, because it's kind of progressive, um, whereas that is not the case with like literature or art or theology or, or whatever, whatever insert ology there. Mm. Um, that that's not the same case. Like just because it's newer doesn't mean it's better, mm-hmm. or doesn't mean that it should it should hold um, a, a space above that which came before. That's right. We we have seen progress in many ways in the life and in and in, in the world, but not everything is necessarily better today because we're in 2022 and we have whatever we have. Um, I think about even a book, a book that popped in my mind um, is Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Mm. Uh, I read that maybe two years ago, year and a half ago. So I found it on somebody's shelf and asked to borrow it. Written 90 years ago and just is a super interesting picture of kind of a sexualized culture. Um, And it's just super interesting being written in 1932 when you think of kind of everything being, um, I don't know, very kind of pure and upright and um, I don't know it just feels different than obviously our world today and so it's it, it's interesting to then go back read old books who then it speaks very true 
to today. I even I remember reading a book by John Stott, I think written in the 70s, talking about people's addiction to TV. And he was taught he was writing to kind of preachers, um, but to to highlight how easily people are distracted. And he was written it was written literally 40 or 50 <laughs> years ago. And it's like, yes, today I'm still very distracted. So hearing you say that 40, 50 years ago is very convicting for my own heart. So to hear people say things from 2,000 years ago, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 1,000 years ago, whenever, and it's like, that still rings true to today. Why is that? Mm. What do I need to learn from that? Um, it's just super fun. It's, it's just a, it, it allows us a different way of thinking than just listening to the, you know, um, the expert of today. Absolutely. Well, Aaron, thank you for talking with me. I, I enjoyed have, it. I know you have thousands of other things. You, you could be doing. No, it's great to just be here with you. We're going to start up <laughs> staff meeting here in a few minutes. So There we go. Well, I appreciate y'all taking the time to listen. Uh, if you have a recommendation on an old book, um, we would love to hear it. Please reach out, pull us aside. Um, but we really hope that, that this conversation um, just gets the ball rolling and, and starts you engaging um, in plenty of other um, old text. Um, well, we appreciate y'all listening. We'll talk to y'all again soon.